0: Hi, my name is Archie, and welcome to The Reconnecting Podcast. I'll be your host on a journey where I will hopefully be talking to some of the best minds of our time on topics relating to the philosophy and psychology of mental health. This week's guest is Dr. Robert Hiepac. Robert is a tutorial fellow in psychology at Oxford University. Together with his colleagues, his main area of study is social cognition and motivation in early life from the first year of life to school age and how young children's understanding of the social world shapes their own behavior to initiate, maintain, and repair cooperative relationships with others. Dr. Hibak has been the author and co-author of multiple academic papers on this subject. Hi, Archie. How's your, how's your week been so far? It's been good so far. Thank you very much for having me and for this opportunity. appreciate it greatly. Yeah. I, um, as you can probably see from the sort of catalog that I have on uh, on Spotify, it's a, quite a new thing for me. And... Um, you know, it kind of just, I got to the point where I wanted to learn more for myself and also show everybody else that, you know, psychology and those sorts of things, they kind of are clouded in this sort of mysterious fog of weirdness, and they're not as scary as they as they seem, um, and they are more accessible to people than, than we sort of uh, let on. Um, and so I wanted to ask you specifically what drew you to psychology and ultimately the study of younger minds specifically. I think it's the most fascinating topic there is to study,
1: but I think that's an, uh, an occupational hazard uh, that most uh, researchers will have when it comes to their, um, the topics that they're interested in. Uh, for me, it was really simple. I uh, did a, um, my uh, undergrads in psychology and in one of the motivation lectures we were or there was a talk advertised by a a researcher who uh, studies uh, cooperation and helping behavior in young children and at the time i had very limited exposure to developmental psychology but in his talk he had these really cool videos of a very tall experimenter engaging in these collaborative activities with young children and he somehow got them to believe that he needed help with the most what looked like mundane tasks of picking up objects or opening doors. And so these kids were helping him. And I just thought the videos were so cool. Uh, The interactions were so I mean, you could not you could not find a better example of something like helping behavior uh, than was shown in those videos. And I just thought to myself, that's what I want to do. And then um, did
0: an internship and uh, did uh, those kind of things. That's amazing. I, you know, when when I when when I found your profile on on the Oxford University website, I I I wasn't sure. I, I I didn't really know myself how many sort of how wide the spectrum of psychology was, and so when I saw that you were looking at sort of the developmental stages of you know younger minds, that really piqued my interest because at, at a young age you're so willing to help and love and care for everybody around you that it's it's almost just a it's an unconscious thing that you do um if you see someone that's hurt you go over and give them a hug you know you, you it's this unconscious beauty in a young mind that we almost forget that exists as we grow older and become more conscious of the big scary world that we live in
1: you know i, I see that point i would just add that Probably some parents might disagree that once their kids hit the so-called terrible twos, there's definitely some um, uh, some sort of extra mix in, in this, what you're describing. But uh, fundamentally, I, um, I see your point and I agree with it. Yes, there is uh, uh, there, um, it's also I mean, from a research perspective, this is a unique opportunity that you are able to um, observe these really young kids as just as they're beginning to be enculturated. Um, in their uh, families, and their uh, social environments. So um, and it, this opportunity never comes back as kids grow older, as you point out, and take on uh, their developmental trajectories. That period is just, um, is, um, yeah, it's precious. So uh, I think we all feel, I probably speak for most, um, if not all colleagues who study young children, that we're always aware that this is an extremely, uh, we're very fortunate to be able to uh, get a glimpse of uh, psychology at these really early years.
0: Well, I think, I think that's why, um, there was a TV show on channel four, which was the, the secret life of, it was like two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds. And it was, it was extremely popular because it's, it is fascinating to watch essentially yourself at that age, because, you know, you were that age one, one time, and it's not an age you necessarily have a great deal of memory of, you know, I can't, I can't sit here and, tell you that I have a fantastic memory of being two and three years old. So it's, it's a sort of, it's a really weird feeling to be able to almost watch what you may have been like when you were that age. Um, and so do you, do, do I wanted to ask you, do you ever sort of get that feeling of almost, um, deja vu almost you, you see, you see an activity that a child does and you almost feel like you must have done that yourself as a child. That's a really interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about that, um,
1: t- to be honest. And um, I would just say, I would just, I mean, I can't add uh, much to, um, to sort of the eloquent way you've put it now, but I would just uh, maybe one observation that I had is that's also important to situate the kind of research that I'm interested in and that, um, that we're doing, uh, is that we provide an opportunity to a uh, behavior and whether it's helping behavior um, or anything, really some kind of um, a performance on on the task. But we're very well aware of the volatility of young children's behavior. I mean, they may have a good day, bad day, had a good nap or no nap. So I think it's just important to point out that there's a clear limit to the kind of research that I'm doing, which is I don't really get a good sense for that child individually. So the kind of arguments that we're building are more based on the group level, as it were, or on the sort of causal effects of a certain uh, exp- experimental manipulation. So, to uh, a long sort of uh, uh, answer to your question is that yes, I also have these déjà vu's, um, and I also always have to tell myself. And actually, that's a conversation we have with uh, parents uh, from time to time: is if we do have a study where a child could help if they wanted to, uh, sometimes parents will ask us, you know, well. If their child didn't help, you know, is this going to be an issue? they always help at home, or I can't believe they didn't help here at all. So there's a really interesting uh, discussion to be had. But we always point out that look, this is it's a one time Research Institute lab visit. In this particular case, we saw your child doing x or y. uh, But uh, I would be uh, I think it's uh, still something we know too little about is to study children on multiple occasions. And I think that would allow us to address the question that you're posing, which is, can we somehow you know, find a profile and visit uh, children uh, in different circumstances. And I think we would be in a better position to answer your question. But yes, I also have these deja vus. And I've asked myself the same questions that you
0: have. No, that's awesome. And that actually brings me quite nicely on to my next question. And you say you don't really get the chance to um, get to know the, the kids one on one when you do these studies, it's more of a group environment. But I'm hoping that, that you can give me some insight into this question that i have and that's do you feel that it's the the sort of nature nurture um argument but more emotional so from 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 a very early age to the sort of first year of school do you think it's more a societal thing that changes children's emotions or do you think it's a more biological hormonal change Or is it just a big mix of both
1: well that's a tough question i don't think our our slot here will um will give us enough time i would so in an attempt to be succinct which i think researchers always find inherently difficult uh, i I do not find the nature nurture dichotomy or this difference between the two as helpful as it may have been in the past and the reason being uh, that with our you know uh, improving methods and more detailed analyses I think you will uh, find very few colleagues who will say it's only nurture or it's only nature um, or that there's a time period where nature takes over or nurture takes over. So um, I I would try to, if you allow me to be a bit evasive here and dodge the question as it were, and just point out that um, there's no doubt that uh, a lot of what we see in young children has a biological foundation. I mean, what I mean it is a genetics at the very end. Um, but if we accept this, then we should also always keep an active, um, an active perspective, which is we shouldn't view this as okay. Here's something that's unfolding, and maybe society should step away or not intervene for you know for whatever children come into the world with is sort of um, you know not interrupted in any way. So I think it would be it would be. Um, Uh, probably the wrong approach to take is but uh, then bring coming to the nurture side of things. uh, Of course, there's an influence of culture children are you know, as they're born as different cultures, uh, you know, in different cultures, the first few weeks, first few months can be very different between families, it's going to be very different. So uh, we always have to keep in mind that children are in a culture from day one. And if anything, they are extremely uh, capable of adapting to their social environment so um, I think there's an argument to be made that it's very difficult to really at any point in time tease apart nature from nurture it might be somewhat easier the younger you know the, the younger the age group is that you're studying but fundamentally I, I sort of side with with colleagues who would say it's clearly um, clearly both are involved heavily uh, from, from day one and so to come back to your question of emotions, uh, I don't have a good answer to your, um, uh, to your questions, uh, to, to that question that you asked. I would just um, maybe sort of point out that we're just starting to begin to understand the kind of societal factors that you're alluding to for the very reason that until uh, recently we didn't really have great measures to automatically and objectively measure emotions. I mean, we could ask children, of course, once they're older, once they can reflect on their emotions, but if we're talking about early ontogeny, early childhood in the first five years of life, I would say uh, our field is experiencing really a really very exciting new push for new methods that allow us to capture um, in pre-verbal or just verbal populations emotions. I think now we're beginning to be at a point where, uh, where we can then ask, How are these emotions that we can now measure influenced by various uh, societal factors sorry a long answer to the question as
0: i as i declared uh but this would be my attempt that's that's amazing 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 answer yeah no amazing answer and you know you've almost got me excited you know you say it's you're coming into an exciting time where you're able to sort of more accurately measure these emotions and that is exciting even to me because you know from my perspective of where i've come from with my own journey you know that could help so many young kids to be able to really understand how a kid feels or be able to really um what's the word i'm looking for um express their emotions from a younger age it can help them understand what their brain is doing because, you know, our brain tricks us, our brain throws us loads of emotions and tells us one thing and we do another thing. And so helping to understand that that sort of trickery and that sort of human nature from a younger age can help us to be in a stronger standpoint as we grow older. You know, I wish I had a better understanding of my emotions from a younger age, because I got to 13 and I sort of went a bit off the rails and by the time I got to 21 and I sorted my life out I hadn't emotionally grown at all so I was still getting used to the emotions of a 13 year old and a 14 year old in the space of you know six months and so it was all quite overwhelming and hopefully being able to get that education to a younger generation faster will only help increase the sort of awareness of your mental health and the awareness of how you can treat that um and that sort of awareness is something that you sort of touch on in a paper which is entitled uh children's intrinsic motivation to provide help to themselves after accidentally harming others had a read of it because it's always good to read up on the people that you're interviewing Um, and i wrote a little question that goes with it and I wanted to ask you, what do you what, what do we do as young children that makes us want to be kinder? Um, and are there behaviours that you think we should be working to adopt in our own lives as an adult? So are there, are there behaviours that we, do you think we could actively seek out that would help us as a society that young children do?
1: And you're basing this all on this particular study, that's great. I hadn't even thought about the scope of this at the time we ran the study or um, uh, or wrote it up. Um, i would come back to this, to the conversation we had at the very beginning about the implications uh, that the kind of studies that I'm interested in have and we always have to bear in mind that the limita- that, there are, that these implications are constrained because our conclusions are on a group level. So I would say, um, uh, you know, I would maybe be a bit more modest and say with that particular study, what I think we can claim is that children's motivation from age two and three uh, is quite flexible and that it's not just a, um, uh, I just want to help, uh, provide help myself. I just want to be an active uh, participant as it were. It's also not just... That i just want to see others being helped and good things being done to good people but it's actually uh, i would say quite interestingly so uh, much more um, flexible in that all things being equal in the population that we've studied uh, children do show uh, a motivation to see others being helped um, it's not at their forefront. It's not on the first first thing that comes to their mind. If they see somebody needing help, they actively want to do this themselves. So they're quite happy to see things being reinstigated. Uh, But then things like these, you know, social emotions, for example, guilt, that was sort of drove uh, the the research question of the paper you're referring to. Guilt in adults, it uh, changes our motivation. Right, so if uh, if I spill a cup on your equipment, uh, uh, yeah, if some, somebody fixes it for me, great, but if I can't do anything to help out or to repair or to amend, um, uh, I remain somewhat frustrated. So emotions such as guilt have this very interesting function and in that they change the motivation for why we engage with others, and guilt has this interesting reparative um, element. That the reason why we experience guilt, or one of the one of the functions is. But it motivates us to actively think about the relationship we have with others uh, to sort of signal to others that we're still, you know, cooperative, pro-social, kind, whatever word you want to use. Uh, and uh, with that paper, all we um, try to just document is when in childhood we can see something like guilt uh, showing its effect. And um, with these methods that we used in the particular paper, I think we could at least uh, uh, open the discussion to say, well, social emo- emotions such as guilt uh, seem to have a grip on children's motivation in uh, as young as two years of age, and this is of course following on from seminal uh, seminal work from um, from others um, uh, uh, that we sort of built this uh, on, um, and this suggests, well, you know, if we're interested in guilt, if we're interested in social emotions, then um, we uh, can start looking at this uh, quite early in ontogeny. Um, and this is one example where uh, given the methods that were used these were phenomena that were typically decided in older kids once you could ask them a question about this or hand them out a questionnaire I have them reflect on their emotions and I think here we are um, uh, 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 in a position to uh, look at the reach of uh, these emotions uh, until really early in ontogeny
0: yeah, no, I think that's um, I think it's an amazing sort of Uh, takeaway from that sort that that study in that it it shows that your brain is feeding you emotion even when you can't quite process it Um, from a young age you know you're, you're you're feeling feelings of guilt and you're feeling feelings of sadness and you're feeling feelings of anger and happiness and all of these things but as you can see when a toddler has a tantrum they don't know why they're angry or why they're sad they just are and that's what a tantrum is, that's what they're freaking out about. You know, if they're really tired and they start crying, they don't know that they're tired because they'll they'll tell you that they're not, and then they'll fall asleep 30 seconds later. So it's 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 fascinating to, to, to see that we are under the grip of emotions and feelings from an extremely young young age. And what your studies really um, outlined for me. Um, is that our emotions work on a very um, societal basis from a young age in that our emotions work to either further or cause us chaos in a group setting. So, you know, you only feel guilt because of another person, really. There's not much that I could do just by myself without the... uh, without another person being involved, whether that's stealing something or, you know, driving a car and doing something like hitting a tree or something, there's not much I can do without another person being involved to cause a negative or a positive emotion. Um, And this sort of idea of do something nice for yourself is a very backwards way of thinking, in my opinion, because the only uh, the the best way of making yourself feel better is by doing something for someone else in my opinion you know going for a walk or going to buy yourself a coffee is great but going to buy yourself and another person a coffee and then having a chat is a million times better Um, and so looking at the early ontogeny and looking at the early development of emotions really helps to explain that We are going to be under that control and that guise of happy, sad, angry, tired a whole way through life. And there's no way of escaping that. And so it's only by understanding that we truly can have a hold over it. And not like a a hold where you bottle everything up and don't address it. It's a hold so that you can can caress it, so you can hold your emotions and you can tell them that everything's going to be okay. And you can help and pass that on to other people whether it be your children or your parents you know and I think it's a really important line of work that you're doing because having control of your emotions from a young age is only going to seek to further society as a whole and further just humans in, in in a great way because having the understanding of why will only allow us to work out the how, because how I deal with my emotions is going to be different to how you deal with your emotions. Um, And how I deal with a bad day is going to be different to how you deal with a bad day. So working out why we feel sad or why we feel happy is the only way to understand how we can get back to where we want to be. And I think you've provided a very
1: very good account of something you can also paraphrase as emotions being social fundamentally. Uh, Yes, I mean, we could even ask whether we would have the same kind of temper tantrums if we were on an island by ourselves. So even episodes that we construct as being rather private or self centered emotions. uh, um, uh, uh, I do think there's a point to be made that from a very early uh, from very early in ontogeny, emotions have this social influence that uh, there are regulated, uh, by, uh, so you said control, you could also say that they're regulated by the presence of others, that they're coming into effect only because there are others around, as you've pointed out. And I would just want to add one thing, which is uh, previously, again, based on the methods we had, we looked at children's emotions in a very adult like way. So we know what guilt looks like in adult or shame or pride. And then when we asked ourselves, how does this develop, we took this adult lens, and focused it on early childhood, and see it, to see whether kids show something similar, show the same kind of bodily responses or physiological responses. And I think what's always exciting for me is with these new methods, we can now actually check whether these emotions look the same in early ontogeny, and maybe even across cultures. You know, do, does does something like guilt or do the precursors to guilt uh, are they similar across cultures at age X? But then after age X, we see these culture specific differentiations to what good looks like in our culture or, you know, or in Japan or whatnot. So these are again, exciting times, because I think we're giving children uh, a, a new opportunity to show us what their emotions look like, which may be different from adults. And this will inform us moving forward of uh, how these emotions develop over the period that you've sketched out uh, earlier, uh, including adolescence, of course.
0: Yeah. And, you know, from a from young age, we're in, we're in education and we have um, pastoral care figures around us um, from, you know, kindergarten all the way through to, you know, primary school and that sort of age. Um, is there any work that you're doing that you believe would be able to play a role in education for those pastoral roles? Because I personally don't feel there's enough education for pastoral figures um, from from even a year, early age all the way through up to high school but that's a that's a whole different kettle of fish um, but yeah from, from, from a young age you know I think there, there are definitely roles in which you are taught to be caring but I think having a having more education and more understanding, for how a child feels and you know uh, an understanding of the work that you're doing would help to play a role in those children's lives i would sure hope so i would sure hope
1: that uh, that the work is uh, has some kind of applied meaning um, uh, at some point um, but i do want to i'm, I'm again, not trying to dodge um, the question or escape responsibility here but i <laughs> I see our contribution as being quite modest and I think there is never there, there's, there's no sense in making some kind of one to one implication or applied use of the results uh, that we find um, uh, being in any way a recommendation for a caretaker a school or a governing body to do uh, to 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 do X or y um, but I do th- think that when it comes to children's well-being mental health again especially in early ontogeny, I think psychology previously earlier mentioned that the brain can play tricks on us i think psychology always has always and probably will always struggle with um, there being a strong folk psychology opinion about how things work what factors influence children when they are sensitive for certain you know experiences educational programs and whatnot and i think for the most part what we're doing as parents is we're looking into our own kids uh, or we might be drawing on our own experiences. So I think everybody comes into this with the individual viewpoint of the children that, they've, you know, that they care for. And, and as a school teacher, kindergarten teacher, you have your group of kids, even if it's across many years, but you have your group of kids that you've studied in a way and that you've observed and looked and, and cared for. And so I think uh, whenever somebody asks themselves, okay, is what I'm seeing here a regular pattern that's maybe replicable? Or am I really observing some kind of fundamental um, mechanism? Or um, uh, am I onto some kind of systematic development here? Then uh, that's a conversation that I think we could partake. We could say, yes, so we've looked at this. and we can actually rule out that what you're observing is just your very extremely kind kids in that neighborhood where the school is at. But is there actually any, can we make any uh, more systematic claims about uh, children's nature? based on this. So um, this was a bit evasive. More practically speaking, I do think the methods we're using, especially the posture measurements and the measurements of emotions will be useful, five to 10 years down the line, for anybody who is interested in children's well being. I do think that we have a measure in place now that allows us to measure how positive a child is feeling uh, throughout the day across various situations. By looking at how they carry themselves how upright they are or how let's say slumped their posture is um, uh, and again this not being a one-to-one meaning as in terms of you can in any reason in a diagnostic I would never never uh, think of our work as being diagnostic but it's simply a lens it's a lens that people in education could use if they wanted to if they were more interested or if they were interested in capturing the phenomenon such as students well-being In a broader sense not necessarily more accurate or better but just in a broader sense and i think our methods our tools are these kind of lenses that anybody can use to uh, get a better sense for um, for how things develop how children feel what their how their well-being changes Um, uh, especially if you're looking at an age where you can't really ask them that uh, because they don't know uh, what an emotion is or they have a hard time articulating it or because they're simply so young that they can't give you a really informed answer to a question.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's amazing. It's almost like a like reference material for 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 someone to look at. And um, I think I think that's really interesting. And so these lenses for, for, for anyone that's listening that may not necessarily know specifically what the what the studies you do are and what sort of um, tests you're doing it's not like uh, you've got children hooked up to wires in a in a big white room like in in movies it's it's more like the TV show a secret life of toddlers where you're sort of observing and could you could you elaborate on that a little bit more yeah I'd be happy
1: to so thank you for also uh, pointing this out that this is what um, we spend a lot of time on is to come up with ways to measure something like an emotion in a Uh, unobtrusive uh, uh, um, and certainly non-invasive way Uh, and anybody who has been around a toddler knows that even putting an arm watch onto them can at the very least distract them uh, if not uh, make them to downright refuse to wear that arm watch so um, uh, all of our studies use technologies that allow us to capture emotions uh, from afar as it were so the study you pointed out earlier with the uh, uh, with the motivation, this is something where we look at children's pupil size as an indicator of their emotional arousal. So we, you could also measure somebody's heart rate or their skin conductance, but both of those would require you to put some kind of device onto your participant. And we thought this was um, not optimal because we would like our you know kids and studies to be as natural as they can be, uh, or behave as naturally as they can be. Um, uh, so uh, we basically had them watch TV. At specific points in a study and while they're watching tv our so in essence advanced webcam cameras take an image of their pupil size and the more emotionally aroused you are the more engaged you are whether positive or negative the more your pupils will dilate and we can pick this up we, we can pick up on this by using these cameras so all we're doing is again from a far measuring Uh, the level of excitement or arousal that kids experienced, if they can help others, cannot help others, see others being helped, and then relate this systematically to different situations that we've constructed. So that's one, uh, maybe a bit more high tech uh, um, method that we use, because these cameras uh, do cost some money. But on a low tech guy, look, I mean, I also used to uh, play a lot of uh, computer games um, uh, uh, when I was younger. So I was completely mesmerized. Uh, when I saw this, uh, this uh, Xbox connect, I'm not making any adverts ads here. But when I saw this Xbox device, um, I guess now probably almost like six, seven years ago, that this was a camera that could detect someone's movement. And then you could play all these different games and whatnot. Uh, I never played any of those games. But I thought, hey, can't we use this camera to uh, reprogram it to record uh, posture, in anyone and why not children as they are doing all of these things they do in our studies helping not helping completing tasks not completing tasks uh, so uh, uh, i think up until that time point you could do these kind of studies by having people look at a video of a chart and then code it according to certain criteria or you could use these point light displays where you would attach a special kind of sticker or marker onto the child with a specialized camera. But again, all of this again comes into this, you know, having to attach things um, that we're not wanting to do. So anyway, uh, so we just took one of those uh, Xbox Kinect cameras, reprogrammed it, so that all we have to do is click record, and it will project the skeletal features of any participant that's in front of it onto that live image which allows us to ask the i think very interesting question which is does helping others coming back to what you said earlier does doing something kind for others does getting a coffee together elevate my posture more than if i get a coffee myself if i can't if i fail to help somebody else so these uh, posture analyses allow us i think to tap into these positive versus negative emotional states in maybe not the most diagnostic surely not the most elegant way but in a cheap uh, and pragmatic sense to at least uh, um, you know I always do this as a sort of first step so this is a very rough lens Uh, uh, so much as you know similar to when the Hubble telescope uh, was shot into space I think the lenses were not perfect there were some issues and the imagery that you got from space were not as crystal clear as they are now but still even those early images told us something about the galaxy and whatnot. And I'm in no way comparing these cameras we have to a Hubble telescope. But the excitement I think is the same, that now we have a lens that's not perfect, that will be uh, will be improved upon in the future. But now we have a lens to capture a process that allows us to have a more informed discussion about phenomena such as emotions and helping.
0: Yeah, that's really amazing. Honestly, I think that's that's so, so brilliant. Um, and you know, for someone that, well, you know, growing up as a kid, when you hear of psychology or you hear of philosophy, you just think of reading books and you don't, you know, as a kid, you don't, these sort of career paths don't open themselves up to you in a way that is interesting, you know? Um, and so just you explaining that to me, it's, it's, it's a brilliant sort of draw, for, for anyone that is even remotely interested in the psychology of like, or just interested in the human psyche in any way, the, the study of anything can be done from a creative standpoint, from a, from a perspective that is fresh and new, because that's the only way we're gonna learn something different by just doing the same thing over and over, you know? Um, if you're doing the same thing over and over and expecting the same result, is madness. So, um, no, that's really, really brilliant. And, uh, I appreciate you sharing on that. And, uh, you know, I, I like asking these questions because when, when it's someone like yourself, that is, you know, a PhD in this specific area, you know, you can tell when someone's interested. And I think, uh, when you, when it means something to someone, and I think that's one of the most important things in life is having that sort of meaning to your work. Um, you know, you say, when you found that Xbox Connect camera, it instantly clicked something in your head to do with the work that you do. And that shows your inspiration to research more. And uh, I, I really, I really like that. I really do. Yeah, I don't want to add to this, Archie. I appreciate you saying this, and I uh,
1: also want to take the opportunity to always point out that of course, in research on science, we always stand on the shoulder of giants. So uh, what we're doing, um, and also what I'm interested in is uh, sort of nothing. Nothing special or nothing new. It's in fact it's in the tradition of the great developmental psychologist uh, Jean Piaget. I'm not going to give a lecture here by all means, but I do want to point out that I think what made his work so fascinating, both at the time and also now, decades later, is that he looked at young kids in this sort of, sort of in this sort of as if they were different species, because um, he was, I guess, coming from his biology, zoology um, and, and background somewhat. And I think just this uh, this sort of approach of um, trying to find ways to talk to kids or to you know to to measure their sort of psychological phenomena in age adequate ways, uh, I think that at the time was really revolutionary. And I see, and I mean, of course, there's been several developments, and people pointed out that he may have underestimated children at a certain age, but I think in the long run, we're all uh, at least the way I was educated. It's all in the spirit of, um, of finding ways of, um, of, of, of measuring whatever we're interested in, uh, in, in a child-friendly, child-adequate way. And uh, trying to, and I think we're all just sort of sharing Piaget's fascination from the very beginning, which is, OK, if you look at these kids, uh, no matter what the age is, even of our fellow human beings, and for that matter, as sort of species, different species in its own right, and giving it it's the the space it needs and also the methods it needs to capture whatever gets them uh, you know gets them going. Uh, I do think that that's uh, that that's where this is all coming from. it's sort of his and of course quite a of seminal work that we're just uh, fortunate enough to uh, piggyback on, as it were. And our studies are just a really modest continuation of this um, uh, constructivist tradition.
0: Yeah, no, of course, as you say, I think for for any any line of work, any line of study, your your you're only adding to the, the the greatness that has come before. Um, and as you say, you're standing on the shoulder of giants, the sort of the leading minds of those topics. Um, but I also think that uh, the way that we educate around those topics should change with the times as our methods of the study change with the times. So when we're learning about psychology, we talk about Piaget and we talk about how instrumental he was at the time but also we focus as well and educate children on whatever topic they're interested in about what's happening now whether it be engineering and robots uh, or psychology and studying people like really studying people and not just having to read and write you know of course with anything that you study there's going to have to be a lot of uh, academia involved but educating uh, the youth in a way that's exciting and fascinating from from day one you know you're always gonna have to respect who came before you because without them you wouldn't be where you are now um but if i had been you know 13 years old and heard about someone using an xbox connect to to record kids to work out how they felt i'd be like that's really cool like yeah, Piaget, he's really cool. He's really cool too. Like this sort of triggers that sort of you know teenage boy in me. I can use like game equipment, and it sort of it fuses those two things together. I appreciate you saying that. It
1: makes me uh, makes me happy.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you're 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 very modest uh, about about the work that you've done. It's you know for I think it's the Dunning Kruger effect. Um, the the. The less you know about a subject the more confident you are um and so your modesty um is is a is a is is proof to the concept i I would say um and on, on a personal from from a personal note with the psychologist brain that you have um i wanted to ask you about just mental health in society briefly and whether you think there's anything that we do today that's really good and anything that we do that's not as helpful um you know things that may be advertised or you know things that you see just in society that you think we shouldn't really be doing that or we should do more of this gosh
1: yeah that's a good question i mean i would definitely have to take a slightly personal take on this because based on on the on on our research I certainly can't really speak um speak to this um, um, uh, fully um, i mean i can only share a few observations and but I, I i wouldn't feel um i, I feel comfortable saying so sort of what i think is being done that's really good and great and i think uh, from a research point of view it makes absolute sense i'm not sure whether i understand also the british system enough yet to figure out what things are what things could be done differently but maybe let's let me start with the first one and then we' see that well, that gets at your question at all. Uh, I think it's great that we are having the kinds of conversations about mental health and um, that we're thinking about the implications that poor mental health has um, for various domains of life, uh, that especially in a situation of a pandemic where we are stripping uh, everyone, but especially children and adolescents of the very essence of what makes humans humans—the sort of socialness, the social environment, the social context, uh, uh, you know, many of the things that we're adapted to do: learn from others, be with others, avoid others, approach others—we uh, can't. We can only do this in a limited way, and I think it's absolutely plausible from a research point of view that this will wear heavy, uh, more so on others. Uh, or some you know, there'll be individual differences, but uh, this is. Uh, uh this uh, matters to us it should matter to us um uh and we we do you know we, we, i mean how much time do we spend uh on social media and other media platforms just reading up on other people and you know i mean we, of course we probably spend some time thinking about the laws of physics uh, but we spend a whole lot of time thinking about social things gossip was what, what is a doing what is B doing how is a feeling? How is B feeling? so we're, this is what we're in part i think also um evolved to do so not being able to do this in in its fullest, has a detrimental effect. So I th- I'm really happy to also read in the news that this is a topic of conversation, uh, that this is being discussed at a table, let it be virtual or in actuality, where you have uh, also psychologists um, um, you know, um, uh, joining in, and being able to also having funding for the kind of research that allows them to ask children, you know, have questionnaires, natural observations, to really I think on the, f- in the first point, acknowledge that mental health is uh, is something that's extremely important uh, to um, to care for. That B, that it is um, highly susceptible to the kind of social stripping that's currently occurring in this pandemic. Uh, so that we have um, you know this is a, these are vulnerable times which require our our fullest attention. Um, and then uh, as a sort of third part, to use these conversations to come up with, you know, ways, educational programs, um, and uh, think of just an, an approach and be in the right mindset to think about what one could do to uh, to help to um, address some of the some of these issues. And you can tell now, as you move from research to society or to politics, this is where also sort of my, uh, my sort of talk becomes very conversational, and the thoughts are not connected as, uh, as pointedly as they should be. But I'll just end on on, on a a, really interesting article that I read on The Guardian, which was about this idea of free play that I think also has gotten a lot of attention also on social media. This idea of that once children are able to um, socialize, to come out of their bubble and to go to school, that yes, our one concern should be can they make up for all the teaching content or the subject content that they lost out on. But please, let's also make sure that they can um, uh, uh, you know recharge on the, recharge those social batteries and have time to play, to interact, to exercise all of these, you know all of these uh, all these great things. So I think this is a, a, this is a really interesting group that I'm sure I mean I won't repeat what, what they've said, but I think this, uh, this just so sort of shows us that here we, we have a culture where we incorporate suggestions from educationers and psychologists to sort of work together and to exchange ideas in a constructive way that are ultimately targeting children's mental health and well-being in ways that I think we uh, didn't do this uh, 10 or 20 years ago so these are really good times in that regard I think
0: yeah i think that's that's amazing and you know i appreciate your your your, your, your take on especially you know the most recent thing that's going on right now in the world this pandemic and everything that's, uh, that, that that that's affecting us so deeply Um, you know, you have a unique perspective from your studies and your research, um, to, to know that it's going to affect, and you know, like it's, it's, it's undeniable that this will have an effect on a younger generation who, you know, if they were two years old at the start, they may be four years old by the time it all ends, you know, that's, that's not, that's, that's a hundred percent of the time that they lived already they've just lived it again in a lockdown. For me, you know, I'm 21 years old. It's a small percentage of my life in the grand scheme of things and still quite small in what's already come before. And, you know, I'm conscious of it. it doesn't make it any easier. Um, you know, the, the lack of connection, um, the inability to see people, those batteries that you talked about. I love the uh, analogy of recharging your social batteries. It's such an important part of life, so deeply intrinsic to being human, um, and something that I think is quite damaging, or not necessarily the best way of explaining things to a young generation or young kids, is this idea of introverted and extroverted, because you know, as a as a young kid, maybe you know, anywhere between the ages of like eight to eleven, um, I thought I was super introverted. And so I would play up to that stereotype of being the kid that sat in his bedroom and didn't want to make friends because I didn't think that I could be extroverted. I just thought it was, you are one or the other. I didn't think it was a spectrum. And, you know, I, it it caused me to not develop in a social way as well as I could have. And so teaching the, generation that's going to come after me and after that as well that it is a spectrum that you have to essentially push yourself sometimes even if you don't want to to go out and seek that connection because it is healthy and it is right to do so
1: i think that's a really great point and i think it's both for the, for teaching the next generations but also f- uh, to raise awareness in those who are around young children school-age children teenagers uh, to um, to uh, on the one hand raise awareness but of course I'm not sure uh, I'm not saying anything new that teachers of course are aware of these kind of things but I mean if you if, if uh, you uh, allow me to and you, of course you can cut this out uh, if it's if it's inappropriate to point this out but I from a research point of view again and also for the value that we put into research uh, I think it's also important to that remind that we remind ourselves that because psychology is about humans, we all have a um, you know, have a sort of a, a naive understanding of how things work and of what you know, what, what one could do to help kids, you know, socialize again, or what one could, you know, so I think I think there's always there's a tendency to not really wonder, okay, what is it that this research can really tell us? Can't we just, you know, figure this out if we just sit down, you know, with a cup of tea and think about how humans are? Can't we, you know, come up with things? And I would just want to uh, point out that um, that psychological research is—it's—it's uh, it's complicated, it's time-consuming, and it will almost inevitably uh, have some kind of, as it were, probabilistic conclusion. So we will, you know, we will always shy away from making definite statements such as this does x and this doesn't do x, but it's always, uh, there's always a margin of error in our predictions. So um, uh, I hope that that people follow your example and sort of read up on these things and become interested in the research that's being done, because I think it's exciting. And what should never be deterred, or, you know, be be um, irritated, if, if the research that we turn to for definite answers, doesn't provide them within an individual study, but it's over a collection of studies, that I think research is able to provide the kind of more definite or more tangible uh, answers that we're looking for. But we have to give it time. Um, And uh, research, uh, unfortunately, doesn't always move in the same at the same speed uh, uh, as our questions are being generated. But I do think that there is that there is some room for improvement in terms of hearing uh, psychological research uh, in the in the public attention. So that's why I think it's so cool. That you have this podcast and allow uh, allow us to um, you know, to have a chat about this because I do think that there is uh, there's a lot of um, that there are a lot of interesting conversations to be had about psychological phenomena with so sort of everybody um, involved being at the table.
0: So thank you for for, for for before I forget at the end of I really appreciate you saying that. Um, you know, uh, as someone that didn't go to university, I or didn't even finish high school. You know, it, it got to the point in my life where I sort of had an, uh, let, let's call it a spiritual awakening for the, for the for the sake of it. But it came to my attention that I needed to do something for myself, to educate myself on why my brain does the things that it does. Because I know that some of the actions that I do or some of the anxiety that I feel isn't necessarily required of me and that I can do something about it. And so, in that sort of research myself, and in you know getting a therapist or doing the other things that I did in my life to, 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 to get better, we shall say, um, I felt it almost an obligation to share anything I found, um, because anyone, if if any, if 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 this podcast can get to someone and one person listens to it, that find some sort of research or find some sort of help for their mental health or anything to do with their own life I consider that a success because you know if I was the age that I was you know eight years ago when I really started to struggle and I could hear a conversation like this I know it would help me and so I appreciate your time for 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 coming on and you know I wanted to just um quickly reiterate a point you made in that if there's anything that you you hear in this podcast or there's anything that sort of spikes your interest, go and read about it and read as much as you can about it. Because, you know, as Robert said, it's, it's never going to be this is the answer because there's somebody else doing research about the same thing and there's going to be a hundred other people that's going to do it in the future or in the past. And we're only learning more. We're not learning the definitive answer. Um, and I think that's what's so interesting about this topic and about psychology and about philosophy in that we're always learning something new there's always something to be gained from having a little read from a little deep dive or in the internet Um, and yeah I'm gonna just leave it up to you for for a minute or so tell people you know if there's anything you want to, to put out there into the world, if there's anything that you can think of, um, let, let the people know. Well, one minute.
1: I'm just going to keep it to two things. I would encourage um, everyone to be curious and to be kind. I think those are two um, attributes that have served our species and our ancestors very well. And I think in times where curiosity is being challenged because of an overload of information and opinions. Um, I think we should always try and retain that maybe also childlike curiosity, uh, an interest in new things and challenges. Uh, I do think it has um, actually, I believe uh, came to believe that this is, um, uh, this is very good um, for us if we stay curious. And I think with that comes also an acceptance of other viewpoints and so on and uh, and being kind yes uh, um, I think that's uh, you've mentioned the word numerous times uh, throughout the podcast and um, as much as we may struggle with certain things or be frustrated with our fellow human beings um, about things they should do and should not do or do or do not do just um, uh, kindness goes a long way and uh, maybe in a different session we can talk about the the benefits that being kind has had um, on our uh, cooperativeness uh, as a species so i would leave it at that uh, be curious
0: and be kind that's amazing thank you so much robert sounds great archie thank you so much i would happily sit down with you for another hour uh, literally any time so um yeah let's keep in touch um and uh and uh, maybe we can have a chat about kindness at some point yeah this was a pleasure thank you so much absolute pleasure thank you all the best to you you too Take care. have a lovely rest of your week thank you for listening to this week's episode of the reconnecting podcast If you've been affected by anything that we've discussed in this episode, please look to the description where I've left links for you to be able to find help. As I always say, pick up the phone and you'll never know what could happen. I love you all and I'll see you next time. Bye bye.